It's time for Valley Writers Read, a production of Valley Public Radio featuring the talents of writers from Central California. Here's the host of our program, Franz Weinschenk. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read, where all the stories you hear are written by San Joaquin Valley authors. We've got two stories for you tonight, one by C.B. Mosier, who makes his home in Mariposa, way up there near Yosemite. His story is called Sasquatch Journal. The other is by Lodi author Dolores Levy, entitled The Boy Who Vanished. And now here to read them for you are the writers themselves. First up, is C.B. Mosier. Sasquatch Journal. Thank you for the invitation, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you can hear me with this cloth covering my face. After everything that's happened, I'm sure you'll understand why I wear it. Of course, what you've heard from the newspapers and television is as inaccurate as nightly war reporting, so I appreciate this opportunity to tell you the real story. And, as you can see from this covered cage by the side of the podium, I brought with me tonight the monster responsible for it all. It was about a year ago that the chaos of city living, even here in the formerly rural Central Valley, crept into my mind and began stirring up my brain like an egg beater. As I look back at it now, I can see I'd grown accustomed to it all. Every morning I chose a tie to wear like some leash for my boss to lead me around by. Then I hit the commute where either some humongous radiator of a ten-ton cattle truck was in my mirror, pushing me to drive faster, or some red and purple and gold-painted lowrider was just in front of my hood, forcing me to drive slower. I guess I'd become habituated to the smell of exhaust fumes in my nose every time I took a walk, or to the constant taste of garlic and onions from the McMexican spicy taco burger egg roll Thai food breakfast special whenever I belched. Did the gunshots in the night start to get old, or was it the menacing stares of drivers within all-black cars that boomed with deafening music when we idled together at a red light? Animals, I used to call them. Believe me, after what I've been through, I don't use that term so loosely anymore. Anyway, who knows how it started? I just know that Saturdays were obligatory grass-mowing days, all 380 square feet of it, and after it was cut, I fertilized it and watered it, guaranteeing its lush, abundant growth. So I'd be there with the mower again next Saturday. That lawn surrounded a house I lived in which the bank really owned and for which I was only in debt to the tune of ten times my annual income. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, I was a success. But somehow I felt unfulfilled. 
And that really came home to me on the second Sunday in May last year at 9.30 a.m. I heard some church bells ringing up over the neighbor's garage. Church bells. That's how I knew it was 9.30. There were no football games on, of course, so I was out in my freshly cut yard, sipping the first beer of the day. A bird chirped up in some tree that has red flowers. It was a common chirp, probably some robin or penguin or some such, but it triggered something which washed over my brain like that smell of anesthesia you occasionally get from your long-ago tonsillectomy. Within the vapors of that memory, I began to smell and taste a midsummer day long ago when I laid on some farmer's green hillside in Ohio. A ten-year-old kid with a BB gun staring up into the sky, listening to birds chirping. So I set my beer down, leaned my head back. Man, I'll tell you that felt wonderful not to be choked by my tie with that maneuver. And I looked up. The sky was pale, that hazy, bleached blue we see here as the smog is building. Against that washed-out blue, there was a black form, circling slowly once in a while, giving a slow flap of its majestic wings to keep it up there. That long-ago Ohio afternoon, it had been a crow. It had cawed down at me, and my feeble gun pinged up toward it a couple of times, when suddenly the horror that I might actually hit the bird struck me, and I put down my daisy to just watch. But that morning in the valley, it was something even more regal, a hawk, red-tailed. So out of place, I thought, he must live somewhere else. He probably came down from the foothills to shop. Groceries, no doubt. You know, cruising Mother Nature's deli section. Excuse me, ma'am. Can you tell me in which aisle they keep the mice? He spiraled higher and higher, and then he wheeled toward the east. That's where the mountains are, I've been told. I watched the now empty sky for a while, and the taste and smell and feeling of that Ohio afternoon slowly evaporated from my memory. Slowly evaporated in spite of my attempts to grasp and hold it forever. You know how it is when you try to hold on to something that beautiful? Like a faint star which is visible in your peripheral vision, but which disappears when you look directly at it. And the harder you concentrate on it, the more elusive it becomes, until, in response to your struggle to hold on, it just disappears completely. So that memory disappeared with the hawk, its shrill call echoing in my ears. And I was, as they say, born again. I looked at my lawn, at the mower, at the six-foot fence that kept out the neighbors, or trapped me inside, depending on how you viewed it. I went into the house, and I looked at my ties, at my shoes sitting there on the table, newspaper beneath them, waiting their shine like some rock star waiting for his champagne. I looked at my clothes, ten suits, fifteen pairs of pants, just one pair of jeans. And they were pressed, not just clean, pressed with a crease 
Jeez. So that was the last time you saw me until now. The next weekend, I'm looking out over a different kind of lawn and up into a different sky. Not that far from here, really, a little over an hour. But the grass in the mountains grows naturally. No bags of seed, no fertilizer, and no damn lawnmower either. The deer mow that lawn. Picture this. An old log cabin built in decades past by some miner, decorated with paisley prints and Christmas lights by a hippie who vanished 20 years ago. It sits on a hillside so you can have morning coffee in the deer-trimmed front yard, which slopes up to the woods. When the sun rises, it cascades through the trees down onto you. After breakfast, you take a hike up to a small waterfall, which spawns ferns and wildflowers, and which, aside from bird calls, is the only sound you hear as long as you sit there. Then, in the late afternoon, you sip a beer out on the back deck, writing in your journal. The deck is about ten feet off the ground, which slopes away beneath you toward the west. And as you sip, you watch the sky turn crimson with the sunset. You can sit on that west-facing deck at night and look a little to the south. There's a white glow in the distance beneath the dark sky, which, they tell me, is this city. (laughs) A little tiny piece of that light, I suppose, is the street lamp in front of my old house. But after looking in that direction once or twice, you don't glance there again. And every day you recapture a little more of that long-ago Ohio summer. As the sun warms the grass, you smell the vapors that rise from it. They're different, of course. Up here it's a pungent thing called bear clover. They say it drives the bears crazy like catnip. That smell, instead of the subtle hint of Midwestern hay. But after a storm, cloud shadows chase each other up and over the hillsides, just as they used to in Ohio, and your eyes, following them, still feel like they're riding a roller coaster. Birds rise on afternoon thermals, wings outstretched and gliding, so you can lay back on the hillside and watch them, just as you did back then. And you listen to the bird symphony coming from the trees to try to separate one call from another the rhythmic chirping, the staccato twitter, the high-circling caw, the cheeping in your roof rafters. And some of that finds a memory in your brain somewhere and takes you and your bicycle off down a dusty road lined by six-foot-tall cornfields, your BB rifle balanced on the handlebars. There are other sounds, too, and they change as dusk descends. An owl screech prickles the back of your neck. The cicadas vibrate in the grass like a lullaby, and frogs, frogs do this sound like a teenager belching. You know, on purpose. So, every evening you sit out on your deck, watching the western horizon turn pink, then red, and you tilt your head back to see the first stars appear in the darkening sky. 
You feel your ears vibrate with the cicadas buzzing around you, and you belch back at the frogs from time to time. By now, you're used to the occasional owl screech, and sometimes you even catch a glimpse of one moving through the dark air, like a shadow inside a shadow. It moves its wings, of course, but it's weird. Unlike all other birds that size, you never hear a flapping sound. One evening, a few weeks after settling in, you're out on that deck drinking in the raucous symphony. Raucous symphony, that's what I call it in my journal. The raucous symphony of evening. Bizzing, belching bird cause. Suddenly, a sound rips through it, makes you spill your beer, deep and growling like an earthquake. You feel it vibrating your bones. Yet, it leaves your ears ringing from the high-pitched screech. You sit there, frozen to your chair, telling yourself that it couldn't be both a growl and a screech, but it was. And even though that evening was the most brilliant sunset yet, you go inside, lock the doors, and leave the nightfall to the animals. That night, in spite of the healthful mountain air, you don't sleep much. There's a little country store a mile down the road. You usually walk there to get toilet paper, rice, wood screws, whatever you need. Then you bring it all back up in your backpack. Good exercise. I lost 20 pounds in three months, but that morning, after a pretty much sleepless night, you drive. The guy who runs the place has a beard, half brown, half gray. The brown part is tobacco juice. His eyebrows are almost as thick as his beard. Bucky, they call him. Great source of local information. Hey, Bucky, last night I heard this really strange sound. Uh-huh. Loud and, and I don't know, half roar, half shriek. Uh-huh. Sound like any animal you know? Any animal I should know? Anything in my Animals of the Sierra's handbook here? Nope. That's 752 with the governor's tax. The book here says bobcats make a loud noise. Oh, yeah? Or do you think maybe a mountain lion? Hard to say. Here's your change. So, you drive home figuring you haven't narrowed it down too much. That evening, you decide to lock the front door, close all the windows, just as a precaution, and take your evening beer out on the back deck high off the ground. You watch for the sunset sky, but you really can't remember what shade of red it was that evening. It wasn't so easy to concentrate. The sky turns dark blue, stars begin to be visible. The sky turns black, and the stars multiply. The cicadas start busying, the frogs begin their belching contests, and some birds or other twitter away like teenage girls at the mall. The usual raucous symphony. Then, abruptly, right in the middle of a sip of beer, it stops. Dead. Dead silence. Like you're sitting there, 
a mouthful of foamy beer fizzing on your tongue. You're swallowing muscles half-triggered already, but like, you know, frozen in mid-swallow. Deafening silence. Your ears ring from the silence. What would cause the animals, all the animals, to all stop at once? Then you feel, I remember this clearly, you feel how cold the air is getting. The sky is too black, the stars are bright, and even though there are millions, they really give no illumination. Where is the moon? You look for something familiar, as if for comfort. The glow from this city is off to the south, as usual, but seems this night to be a thousand miles away. You know, when it's that dark, it's like you're blindfolded, and in the silence, it's like someone put earmuffs on you. Then the other senses get hyper, you know? So you're sitting there, beer stuck at half swallow, struggling to move air back and forth around the suspended beer, staring into darkness, listening into silence, and shivering from this descending cold when the grass off to your left kind of snaps. So you strain to hear more. It's like your left eardrum is bulging right out of your ear, trying to get a little closer. You stop breathing. Eventually, you start running out of oxygen and go to take a breath, and then you choke on your beer, and you cough, and you sputter, and, oh, my God, whatever's out there can hear me. Run, you think. Run into the house. No, wait, wait. Don't turn your back. What? Are you nuts, you ask yourself, as if sitting here gagging and gargling, it won't notice me? You're frozen to your chair. You swallow, you suck in a big breath, and then hold it again. You dig your fingernails into the wooden armrests and listen. Silence. Silence still. No frogs, no birds, no cicadas. Maybe you scared it away? Then a twig snaps right under the deck, and next thing you know, you're in the cabin, bolting the door closed behind you, beer dripping onto the floor from the front of your saturated shirt. You actually try to sleep that night, you know, lying in bed but with all the lights on and your eyes wide open. Somewhere around 2.30, you get mad at yourself, cowering, whimpering under the sheets, a prisoner in your own brand-new home, your imagination teetering a little out of control. So you decide to do something, by God. Do something. Tomorrow. First thing tomorrow. So, when it's good and light and the stupid little birds are chirping away as if everything's fine, you go to the tool shed and pull out lumber, your skill saw, hammer, nails, and hinges. You go to Bucky's and get a self-locking latch. You work away, banging your thumbnail. Twice. By late afternoon, you've got yourself a nice little trap. Now you wonder, what do you use for bait to catch a, a, a what? You ponder that a good long while, I'll tell you. Three beers worth. Have to make a second run to Bucky's store for another six-pack. 
two more beers into that six-pack with evening approaching, you still can't think of what to use for bait. You're starting to get desperate. It's getting almost too late to crawl under the deck and set the trap. Then it comes to you like a flash of brilliance. Now I know why they use those little light bulbs over the head in cartoons. Sometimes you just have to sacrifice, my former wife used to say. That was whenever she wanted to use one of my T-shirts to scrub the floors. Sacrifice. So, you pour a beer into a bowl and you place the bowl within the trap, carefully so as to not trigger the delicate door mechanism. You hope maybe, as you're crouched there on hands and knees, that it isn't going to hurt if you leave some scent of human on the trap by touching it. Luckily, the bowl didn't require the whole beer, so you use the remainder to begin your evening vigil up on the deck. Pink sky, cicadas busying, a warm breeze blowing upslope below the deck, the smell of hops and grain and alcohol oozing up from beneath the deck, and a sort of self-satisfied feeling that you're smarter than it is. You don't have a gun, but just in case, up on the deck where you should be safe, you have a knife. It's just a kitchen knife, actually, but it's big. Knife in one hand, beer in the other. Then the frogs start up. You belch back at them for a while, at least until you use up all your gas. Then a hoot owl, and the sky turns dark blue, and the city's glow begins to materialize. An evening breeze brings the perfumes of bare clover and various grasses to your nose. The stars come out. The birds and frogs and cicadas sing on, and you wait for the sudden silence, the rustling grass, the snapping twig, the lapping of beer, and the slamming shut of the trap's door and automatic lock. You chortle to yourself at the perfection of this plan and pop another beer without letting go of the knife. Your muscles all spasm at once. There's a terrifying noise, like, like thunder. You're blind. You're paralyzed. You're asleep. And you're defenseless. You thrash and struggle like a drowning man trying to reach the surface. You flail toward consciousness to get your muscles back before it eats you alive. It takes an eternity, an eternity, until you can feel again. And then what you feel is this searing pain on your right cheek and your own hot, sticky blood flowing down your face, onto your chest, onto your shirt. You emerge from sleep, your arms flailing, hoping to strike an immortal blow. Your brain is panicked. It's pitch black. It's freezing. You take a step and begin running, but you're trapped in that familiar dream feeling that you can never outrun it. You fall to the deck from your chair, or the monster drags you there with its fangs. You lash out at it with both hands and whatever you're holding in them. You roll around in the wet pool of your own blood, fighting for your life. Your ears ring with the growling and shrieking and roaring and cursing and spitting, and you bite and you stab and you wrestle and you punch and you thrash, and, and, and finally, finally you chase it off. You stay there on hands and knees, 
pouring blood from your face and heaving for breath until the noise of your panting ebbs enough to hear again the forest cacophony of frogs and things. You wiggle your toes to make sure the spinal cord still works. You open your eyes to be certain you haven't been blinded. A glistening pool of blood smears the deck beneath you. Later in the morning light, it would prove to be mostly beer with a slight tinge of blood, but you can't tell that at the time. You push yourself erect and stagger into the shower, wounded but certain you'd gotten the best of it. In the faint nightlight of the bathroom, you see what the monster's fangs and claws had done to your face. You really don't want the gory details, so you don't turn on the big lights before you shower and clean up. It was bad. But I wasn't about to trust the local drunken quack, so I left it to heal by itself. Pretty bad scar, I can assure you. Got infected, got bigger, but somehow, you know, I guess I'm a little proud of it. But I'd kind of pretty much had it with country living, so... Now I'm back down here where the night sky glows almost like daylight from these millions of electric lights and the boombox lowriders sound like bodyguards prowling and I, I get lullabied to sleep each night by sirens and the scream of neighbors' domestic disputes. The random gunshots of the neighborhood are somehow reassuring. I feel like I'm home again. What's that? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 the cage. Well, after I'd put a few band-aids all over my wounds, man, one just missed my eye, I went down to pull out that useless trap which failed to defend me and to take it to the dump. Huh. Well, I jumped back in shock, and I admit it, heart-pounding panic, but you can forgive that after everything I've been through. The door was down and secure with its automatic latch, and inside, trapped and snarling and spitting and hissing and growling there, it was. The bait dish clanked inside the cage as the thing paced around in its cell, ranting its anger at being trapped and, no doubt, at having lost its big fight with me. Took me a while to figure out how to transfer it from the trap to a cage, so I could finally see it, yet be safe, and be certain it couldn't get at me again. Now, I gotta warn you that if you've seen drawings from the 19th century or blurry photographs from the 1950s of the fabled Sierra monster, this thing doesn't match the image exactly. Walks on all fours, for instance, and it's got a lot of fur, and it's maybe a bit smaller than you expected. Maybe a lot smaller, but believe me, it can do damage. You should see my face. Okay, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take off this cloth over my face so that you can see the monster's handiwork. I'll give any of you in the audience who are squeamish a minute or two to get up and leave. Not everyone can take it. Then I'm going to remove the cover from the cage here so that you can see it for yourselves. Just don't get too close. But while the squeamish are filing out, let me thank you again for this invitation to tell my story and 
let me assure you that I'm real grateful to be back down here among the gangsters and drive-by shooters. I feel safer. I really do. Was C.B. Moja reading his story *Sasquatch Journal*? C.B.'s story reminds us of a quote from Alfred Lord Tennyson. He writes, "Nature is red in tooth and claw." So, what's a Sasquatch anyway? Well, according to the encyclopedia, it's a legendary, big-footed creature, supposedly found in the northwestern part of our country, sometimes called Bigfoot, and thought to be a kind of hairy. Humanoid, of course. In CB's stories, we never really find out what that wild animal was—a mountain lion, a bobcat, or some kind of a wild weasel. But boy, whatever it was, it sure made a mess of the narrator's face. Thank you, CB Mosher, for such a gripping tale. We're glad that your narrator moved back to the big city, so that he won't have to face any more of those wild beasts, friends. C.B. Mosier is a medical historian who practices public health medicine in Mariposa. He has been published on a number of times, both in print and in e-magazines. And now for our second story this evening, the author is Dolores Levy, and her story is entitled "The Boy Who Vanished." Here is Dolores to read it for us. The boy who vanished. 8 a.m. A lovely summer day here in California, the San Joaquin Valley, to be exact. It's important to give the reader a sense of time and place to start with. I pushed this when I taught high school English quite a few years ago. Forget that I just ended a sentence with a preposition. So what? I'm not teaching anymore. At this stage in my life, widowed with grown children and twelve grandchildren, I find myself free to do silly things, like going to garage sales when there's not a thing I need or a square inch in my house for something new, or for something even pretending to be new. But I go anyway, just to get out of the house, especially when the sunshine is cool and inviting on any given morning. Among the classified ads this day is a multi-family sale in a decent location: furniture, tools, picture frames, toys, and much miscellaneous. The usual. However, it's the miscellaneous that most often captures my attention. Five minutes later, I am in my car on my way for who knows what. 
When I arrive, a group of energetic women seems to be in charge. They're bustling about and loving every minute of it. Marge, did you bring the masking tape and labels? Yeah, but not enough. I brought some too, Louie. Now where did I... Everything's over here, shouts Joanne, the real instigator of this event. Over the general hubbub of setting up, these three gals reach lofty decibels in communication, and I soon feel that I know them personally. They remind me of my own daughters, Kathy and Eleanor. Same age, I would guess. When the hectic rush of setting up subsides and the early crowd thins out, a young boy about 13 years old walks by me, toting a well-worn child's hobby horse. You remember, like the kind you bought for your son, long before he could even walk. Under a large shady tree, the boy carefully lowers the bouncy, spring-laden creature to the ground, and with an old t-shirt begins to wipe off the dust. What are you doing with that, Walter? yells Joanne. The boy turns, dust rag in hand. Thought I might as well get rid of it. He waits for her approval. It comes slowly. It's up to you, son, she speaks softly. That horse is yours. And softer yet come his words to her hearing. Love you, Mom. Amid the ebb and flow of lookers and buyers, of cars stopping or crawling by... I see the boy pull his baseball cap low over his forehead as he nonchalantly circles his childhood companion. With one hand in his pocket, he reaches out to caress the horse's tattered mane. I watch him balance the dangling stirrups and straighten the moth-eaten tail. With one finger, he follows the grooves in the faux leather saddle and looks deeply into the mismatched eyes of an old friend who has served him loyally as long as he could remember. Finally, after another quick look around, still not noticing me, Walter throws one leg over the horse, pulls himself into place, and draws the reins tight. Furtively, I watch as the young man takes his last gallop to an enchanted land, a land where he is in command of a great and magic steed, a horse that is his soulmate, and breathes the same air we all breathe. In a few moments, Walter returns to reality, pulls his cap even lower, and settles into his grassy refuge under the tree. About this time, I observe an elderly woman stumble, dropping her purse and packages. She catches herself against one of the tables, but not before Walter is at her side, easing her to a bench. Carefully, he gathers her scattered belongings and hands them to her. With a trembling chin, she thanks him, again and again. What a quick response, I think to myself. A good boy. Then it dawns on me. Right here, in this nondescript nowhere of a yard, a society of three generations has gathered to buy, to sell, to communicate, and socialize each of them revealing much of himself or herself in the process. "'What are you going to do with your money from this sale?' asked Louise, turning to Marge. "'The crush of early customers has dwindled. Time to settle into the lawn chairs and visit with friends.' "'I don't know. What are you going to do with yours?' replies Marge. 
No one has much energy left for idle conversation, but it continues anyway. I wish I hadn't put out my blue sweater, comments Louise. I always liked it so much. I think I'll take it, and she starts to get up. Oh, for heaven's sake, Louie, you've worn that for years, says Marge. I'll buy you a new one. The women laugh together. Marge continues. Joanne, is Walter really going to get rid of his hobby horse? I remember when he first... She stopped in mid-sentence. There is a lull in the lightheartedness. I remember that too, says Joanne. Walter was so excited when his dad first brought it home. A cloud from somewhere in a clear sky casts a shadow over the three friends. That was years ago, Joanne continues, long before the war in Iraq even started. She pauses, pushing her long blonde hair back from a somber face scarred by memories. Marge and Louise glance at each other. There is gloom in the day's occupation. Joanne's eyelids grow heavy. Stop, her inner voice scolds. Stop, don't go over all this again. Not here, not now. Don't close your eyes. You don't want to see the two military men at your door again. You don't want to make a fool of yourself and fall on your knees like you did then. You don't want to scream at God Almighty. No, no, no. To her friends, she remarks coolly, Jim would have approved of this sale. He always said we had too much stuff in the house. The bitter silence bubbles like an open can of soda. Maybe if he hadn't been deployed so quickly and so often. The words ooze from Joanne's lips. God, how I miss him. But I have Walter, and I'm doing my best with him. He's a good kid. No one could do any better, agrees Marge. We'll always be around to help in any way. You know that, don't you, kiddo? Asks Louise. Any time at all. Though I am a few steps away from the verbal exchange, I'm tempted to put in my two cents worth regarding Walter. Joanne is raising him to be a well-mannered person, one who is quick to help someone in distress, someone willing and able to help his mother get ready for a garage sale, someone who knows how to handle a dustcloth and can be sentimental about an old, beat-up toy. I remember reading somewhere that sentimental people are usually capable of great love also. Whatever the reason... I stop browsing and go over to Walter. I tell him I would like to buy the hobby horse and that I hope my unborn grandson will be as nice a young man as he is. Thank you, ma'am, he pats the horse once more. With his strong young arms, Walter loads the horse into my van. When you have a yard sale, he says, smiling, I'll buy him back from you, maybe for my kids. Watching me drive away, Walter waves to me from the shade of the tree. In my rearview mirror, I see him become smaller and smaller and smaller. I squint to catch a last glimpse of him. I blink. He is gone. And in his place, I see a young adult, tall and mature, morphed from a 13-year-old into the person Joanne and Jim and God intended one who was raised by a young mother 
who knew what she was doing all along. That was The Boy Who Vanished by Dolores Levy. Thank you, Dolores, for such a tender, poignant story. Folks, Dolores is a retired art and English teacher who put in many years working at Lodi High School. Over the years, both Dolores and her husband Don, who we're sorry to announce passed away last year, have contributed many fine stories to Valley Writers Read. At this time, we here at Valley Writers Read want to extend our sincerest condolences to Dolores and her family. Don Levy was a fine writer and a great friend. We all miss him and honor his memory. But life does go on, and so we hope Dolores will continue the Levy tradition and write and read many more of her fine stories for us. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear tonight's or any other of the programs in our series over again, just go online to kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our writer-reader will be Mary Lee Gowlin. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read. <laughs>